Hey guys, welcome to another huge episode of Trigger. Tonight we're going to be joined by the great Darren Beatty. Darren is a friend of the show. He runs Revolver News. He's broken a lot of really interesting stories that no one else seems to want to cover, strangely. We wonder why that is. Every interview we've done with Darren has been a hit, and I'm sure this one will be too, because there's so much to talk about, especially with his background in academia as maybe the, I guess, the only, let's call it, academic for Trump back in 15 and 16, etc. So I think you're going to really like this one, guys. Make sure you like, make sure you share, make sure you subscribe so that you never miss any of these episodes. And remember, you can also find them all. Triggered is on Spotify. It's on Apple Podcasts. So after they air here on Rumble, you can check them out. You can catch up with back episodes, especially if you're driving or in a plane or whatever it may be. Check it out there as well. So before we get to Darren, uh, a quick rundown of all the latest headlines, the craziness from the weekend uh, that we'll talk about with him as well. But we got to begin with everyone's favorite crackhead, Hunter Biden, who is finally facing some actual felony charges. At least, you know, that, that's the optics they want you to believe right now. But on Thursday night, Hunter Biden, we talked about it a little bit on the show live there, but we didn't have any actual information. Hunter Biden was indicted on several tax charges for failing to pay $1.4 million in income taxes. The indictment details how Hunter spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on hookers and drugs and took out $1.6 million from ATM machines in a four-year period of time. Now, that's pretty amazing in a largely cashless society. I imagine for me in that same period of time, it was probably like 10 grand. But, you know, minor details, folks. I'm sure it's all above board. This is the same guy that needed his dad to get a truck loan during that same period of time. He took out $1.6 million from ATM machines, didn't want to pay child support, but blew hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, on hookers and blow. Totally normal, folks. This is the smartest man that Joe Biden knows. The indictment will help Hunter Biden avoid taking a deposition before the House Oversight Committee. We discussed this last week, guys. Remember I said it? Mark my words. He'll plead the fifth the DOJ is literally helping him out with this charge. They're doing him a favor. And Joe Biden will surely pardon Hunter after November, whether he loses or wins in November, uh, regardless. It's not looking good for Joe, but who knows what games the Democrats are up to. But that's what they're doing. Of all of the charges that Hunter Biden could be guilty of, all, all of the crimes we see the evidence of, and wire transfers, and links, strangely, nothing here has been linked to Joe Biden. This is not the DOJ getting justice and equal justice under the law and all the other nonsense. This is them working directly for Joe Biden and the Democrat Party, making sure to not go after the things to tie to his father. And of course, you have the leftists on the media and on Twitter saying, he's not an elected official. I know, he was just sending 10% to the big guy because he's not an elected official. This is insanity. The real story is not whether Hunter paid taxes or the millions of dollars he made, or the banks questioning why he was getting money from the CCP entities despite not really actually performing any services, but why 
he made those millions of dollars. The indictment shows that in 2014, Burisma agreed to pay Hunter Biden a million dollars a year for a no-show job at an energy company of which he knows nothing about in a language he doesn't speak. However, in March of 2017, after Joe Biden left office and was no longer the vice president, Burisma magically cut Hunter's pay in half to $500,000. I wonder why that is, folks. You think maybe, just maybe, they were buying access? No way, that would never happen, right? Joe Biden is toast, by the way, folks. We see that every day. The Wall Street Journal released a poll on Saturday showing my father leading him by four points in a head-to-head matchup. It must have killed the globalist journalists to read that. The reason is Biden's losing simple, folks. People are poorer now than they were just four years ago. A whopping 76, 76 percent of Americans told CBS News, not exactly conservative publishing, that their income isn't keeping up with the pace of inflation. And it's not even close, folks. I'm the son of a billionaire, and if I see that, everyone's getting crushed, okay? The Wall Street Journal report this morning showed just how unaffordable life has become for Americans under Joe Biden. The average monthly new home payment when Biden took office was just $1,700. $1,700. At the end of the Trump administration, the average monthly new home payment now is $3,300. That's not affordable. That's not sustainable. That's before you take into account inflation and everything else. Okay? This is by design. Remember the quotes like, you won't own anything and you'll be really happy, right? Just like you'll be really happy eating bugs while the rich still eat meat and yada, yada, yada. Meanwhile, there are deadly consequences to Biden's open border. An illegal immigrant was arrested in Texas for the murder of a 16-year-old cheerleader. This is what happens when you let millions of unknown people come into your country, folks. Many of them with criminal backgrounds. But, you know, Biden can't even make an argument for why his policies are good. So instead, he has to try to smear his opponents as extremists, despite the fact that his actions are that of fascist dictators. My father had the perfect response to this during a speech in New York just this Saturday. Check it out. I tell that to Biden, I say, Joe, when he gets up, we've got to stop the MAGA extremists. Yeah, I'm extreme about making America great again, right? We're extremists. Democrats are going to try all sorts of dirty tricks to win next year, folks. It's already started. Just last week, a black woman was arrested for trying to burn down Martin Luther King's birth home in Atlanta. Watch this clip and see what happened. What are you what are you doing? What are you doing? No, that's gasoline. Was there uh, some type of direction? Guys, expect to see a lot of this in 2024, okay? Had it not been for the Good Samaritans that caught them in the act, 
This would have been blamed as an arson by MAGA extremists. How many other race-based hoax have we seen in the last year? How many have been caught? Quite a few, right? Some of the biggest have actually been caught. We learn it's a lie. Then all of a sudden, the story magically disappears. When they're not caught, we're left assuming it had to be some sort of, you know, white supremacist, because that's according to the FBI, the biggest problem facing America today. No one seems to know any of these people or actually see them, but had it not been for the people that caught this lady, that's who would have been blamed because they're trying to sow discord. They can't help themselves. It's what they do because it's been very effective. The left and the media are going to push hoax after a hoax after a hoax next year in hopes of rigging the election in Joe Biden's favor and doing the bidding of the Democrat Party. This is not going to stop. It's been going on ad nauseum. But I do want to end on some good news before we get to the interview with Darren. Liz McGill is no longer the president of my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania. While I've really been disappointed in my school, the place where I graduated and hold a degree from, for leading the charge of putting men into women's sports. Remember Leah Thomas? esteemed female swimmer that just wasn't so good as a guy, that was Penn. That was my alma mater. We would have had a blast back in the day showing up at the swim meets with a keg just laughing about this, but today you'd get thrown out. Problem is, you won't seem to get thrown out for being anti-Semitic. You won't get thrown out for calling for the genocide of an entire race of people and turning a blind eye to the anti-Semitic insanity that's going on. But at least their board was the first to act. While they've been first to act in a lot of really bad ways lately and leading the charge of woke insanity, at least the board showed some sense, okay? There are repercussions for the lunacy that's taken over academia. Let's hope this is the beginning of that. Let's hope this is the start of many changes at universities. For far too many years, America's colleges have been breeding grounds for extreme leftism. I wish the boards of these universities woke up earlier, but it's better late than never. Changes need to come at Harvard as well, where pro-Hamas university president Claudine Gay is refusing to resign. Journalist Chris Rufo reported yesterday that it seems Gay plagiarized entire sections of her PhD thesis. If she can't get fired after refusing to punish calls for genocide or plagiarizing her thesis, then DEI is truly unstoppable. Just a few hours ago, 500, I believe it was, other academics at Harvard signed a letter in support of Gay. Now, She's not a noted author. She's not the author of numerous articles. She's barely had a presence in academia, but because she is, I believe, gay, because she does check off a couple boxes, she can assume the leadership at Harvard. <laughs> it's unbelievable, but it's just the beginning. College campuses are important because what happens there spreads to the rest of society. This week in Fresno, California, hundreds, 
held a rally where they raised the Palestinian flag and chanted from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. They raised that flag in replacement of the American flag that belonged on that flagpole. Radical colleges means a radical country. That's what we see. It's not just the president of Harvard or the president of MIT. The 500 people that stand in solidarity with her, despite, again, apparently no real accomplishments, despite backing and standing up for a radical insanity, despite plagiarism and being called out for that, they're just fine with it because they don't actually care. These are no longer merit-based places. They don't care for that. Just look at the admission statistics according to race and scores. It's way out of whack. But again, Darren has uh, a great academic background. Again, one of the only academics that stood in support of Trump. We'll talk about all of this with him shortly. But before that, I want to thank our incredibly brave sponsors for having the guts to support a show like this. Again, guys, we need you to check them out. We also need you to like, share, and subscribe because no one else is willing to even have this conversation. I'm watching what's going on even in conservative linear television and saying what the hell is happening. So be sure to check out the great folks over at Gold Co., guys. Interest rates are rising. Of course, we're still seeing the inflation, reckless spending, global turmoil. Biden caused disasters each and every day, and it's only leading to more economic anxiety. I just want you to be prepared. And owning tangible, physical, inflation hedging gold and silver can help secure and stabilize your portfolio. Gold Co. is top-notch customer service. They'll answer all of your questions, and they'll walk you through the whole process so you can educate yourself and make an informed decision. To learn more, go to donjuniorgold.com. That's D-O-N-J-R-Gold.com. Learn more, ask the questions, inform yourself, and protect yourself from the insanity that's taking over not just academia, but the world. While you're at it, guys, don't forget to also check out the great folks over at Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative wireless provider. I keep saying it. We need to support the companies who support you, and I have a feeling you're going to have a cell phone in your pocket one way or the other. So have your cell phone with Patriot Mobile where you put America first with every call while getting the same nationwide coverage as the major carriers, those same major carriers whose parent companies tried literally canceling conservative programming on cable and elsewhere. Patriot Mobile provides you dependable wireless service at an affordable price, putting your dollars into action and supporting freedom-loving values. They literally donate a portion of every dollar to support groups that fight for the First Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, the sanctity of life, and protecting our brave police and first responders. So for free activation, it's fast, free, and easy. Go to patriotmobile.com triggered, just like the show. Free activation, patriotmobile.com triggered. Again, you can have your hard-earned dollars work towards companies who believe what you believe in and are putting their money where their mouth is, or you can give your hard-earned dollars to companies that hate your guts and will actively take your money and use it to push the woke causes that hate you, that you hate, and who would put you in the gulags. The choice is pretty simple to me, folks. Support those who are with us in this fight. Go to patriotmobile.com triggered. Get fast, free activation and start voting with your wallet. With that, guys, 
Joining me now, guys, great friend of the show, Revolver News founder, Darren Beatty. Darren, great to have you back. But uh, your academic background as the, the founder and only member of Academics for Trump <laughs> back in 20, 2015, 2016, literally the only person probably uh, who, who took a salary at a university in America, uh, we saw what's going on over the last couple of weeks. Uh, the University of Pennsylvania uh, president has now stepped down. That's my alma mater. They've been leading the charge in woke BS, whether it with, with Leah Thomas uh, pushing that, having leading the charge of men in women's sports. But now we're learning that the president of Harvard, uh, Claudine Gay, was caught up in a plagiarism scandal stemming from her you know, PhD work. Can you lay out what we're seeing in academia right now? Because it seems like, you know, if you become the president of Harvard at any other time, you would say you have all these qualifications. But it turns out like she's not written a book. She's only taken part in a, in a handful of academic studies. It seems like she's plagiarized some of those. How, how do you become the president of Harvard without actually having seemingly any actual academic credentials? I mean, I get that she I believe she's gay. Um, you know, and, and she's black, but like, is that enough these days? I, it seems like that would be uh, a problem. What's going on? Well, being both gay and black is a tremendous credential in academia these days. And it's kind of ironic because my understanding is her name is actually gay and she's also this gay black woman it's like if this were a south park episode you know you could argue oh just wait, no, dude they're, they're so coming with this one this one has to be uh it, it, you know it, this has got to be on their radar at this point and they, they haven't missed much lately yeah it, i mean it's the whole thing is like on one hand it's hilarious on the other hand it's just very sad because you know American academic excellence, the fact that America possesses the top universities in the world has always been, you know, one of its major comparative advantages and something that we could rightfully be proud of. And so we're just seeing another example recently with um, this uh, unfortunate anti-Semitism issue that you see across the bureaucracies and, of course, in the student populations as well. I mean, let's not forget that the anti-Semitism you see or tolerance for anti-Semitism at the bureaucracies and the higher level is basically an appeasement strategy for the more radicalized student populations and, and student groups. Is yeah. That's my understanding. Someone like Professor Gay, I mean, I'm sure that she's you know left-wing in orientation, but these university presidents understand they have a very fine line to walk on because it, on the one hand, they don't want to do something like, you know, end up like UPenn where they have to resign. Yeah. But also they don't want to say something that leads to weeks and weeks of riots and protests and sit-ins and so forth. So part of it is just the environment that's allowed to develop and metastasize within the universities uh, that has led to such a disastrous thing. But this goes so far beyond anti-Semitism, which is the recent boiling point and is gained the attention of some people like Bill Ackman, who in other contexts wouldn't necessarily be too concerned about expressions of wokeness at the university. So it's good that people like that are now at least attentive to the wider issue, and I hope they become more so. But the political radicalization of the university is something been going back since the 60s, and 
Um, we're really seeing the fruits of that in such a disastrous way. And as for the um, plagiarism issue, like it is funny, um, you know, and I think this is not unique to Professor Gay or uh, Dr. Gay. This is a rampant issue. And, you know, there's talk going around on Twitter. I think it's valid that if AI tools were kind of retroactively applied, we'd see so many plagiarism scandals. I almost think a greater scandal than the plagiarism is simply that this woman was operating in a fake discipline to begin with. And you see in the sense of so many of these, yeah. you know, affirmative action, people, you look at their CV and literally Everything in it is about some race doctrine. Yeah. They've created fake disciplines to accommodate people like this because they can't succeed and contribute effectively in other disciplines just simply by virtue of scholarship. So they create these fake identity-based disciplines. So to me, like that's the greater scandal than plagiarizing within an already fake and ridiculous um ridiculous discipline. So there's so many factors just, you know, coming to the fore that have been in the works for a long time, all the way up to the bureaucratization, you know, the DEI administrators have surpassed faculty at most public universities now. Yeah, well, that's what I, I mean, I saw that just today, uh, I think it was 500 Harvard faculty signed a letter in support of, uh, you know, the the Harvard president. And again, but so wait a minute, you don't have to have credentials, you check off some diversity, you're, you're perhaps one of the bigger beneficiaries of DEI policy, if these things are true, certainly. Uh, you're right about, you know, the yes, they have a PhD in underwater basket weaving, therefore, you must respect them. Because what do you know, peasants, you only, you know, you're, you're, you're a mechanic. So you actually probably have a far greater skill set. But you know, they got their, you know, doctoral thesis in underwater basket weaving, and therefore, they're a doctor, you must call them that right, Dr. Jill, uh, all of these sort of things. Uh, you know, but is there a realignment underway or or is it even possible at this point if 500 people at Harvard are saying, no, we don't care about any of these things. We stand in solidarity with her. You know, does it matter? I love what Bill Ackman's doing. And for those who don't know, you know, Bill Ackman is a New York hedge fund billionaire. He's a major Democrat donor. Um, I just I noticed he actually followed me on Twitter, maybe because I've been talking about some of these things for a while. I was sort of I didn't see that in my uh, bingo card. But, you know. Penn seemed to have made movement because a $100 million pledge disappeared. So, you know, money still talks. But does that matter to the 500 people that are signing on in support of someone that seems to have no business there? And again, maybe I'm wrong, but this reporting seems to be fairly accurate. You're right. It do she doesn't have a degree in nuclear physics. This is one of those sort of like, let's make up, uh, you know, a concentration to say that we're, you know, the expert and we have a PhD amongst other things in, but it doesn't actually generate or create any real value other than to perpetuate the nonsense of the DEI cycle, right? The DEI people love DEI because it's guaranteed employment. They find problems that don't really exist because only they can solve them. Uh, the donors are now saying they've had enough, but is anything going to really happen in the long run or is academia too far taken over? You know, that's a great question. And yes, you know, your basket weaving examples, I mean, that gives us a sense of the plagiarism, like, 
how dare you plagiarize your basket weaving PhD? Didn't you know that somebody else made the same basket and yeah. now you're making the same basket? You know, it's, it's no, just- No, but Darren, I did it underwater, it's, so it's different. <laughs> it's a valuable contribution to society. Right, exactly. But, you know, the underlying question that you pose is really critical and it's hard to answer because things can go in a number of ways. I think um, it is fair to say that the donor influence is not negligible. I mean, we've seen the fruits of that in the recent reg resignation at Penn, and there could be follow-up issues um, at MIT and Harvard. We'll see how that plays out, but there's certainly real leverage that has been brought to bear that has not, unfortunately, I would say, in previous cases been brought to bear when it comes to just vicious and general anti-white indoctrination within the universities, which is also a broader issue. And it's the issue that frankly underlines the anti-Semitism. The anti-Semitism is acceptable because anti-white racism is acceptable. And within the sort of broader dynamic of, say, the Israel-Palestine situation, the Israeli Jews are considered to be white within that paradigm, as opposed to the colonially impressed, oppressed Palestinian people. That's yeah. precisely why the framework plays out the way it does. So I think to the extent that people have only taken an interest now because it involves anti-Semitism or think that somehow that can be carefully cordoned off, um, I think that some people are starting to realize that that is unrealistic. But I think that's a very, that's going to be a very tempting compromise because these donors do have leverage. But yeah. as I mentioned, these university administrators don't just have the donors on one side pressuring them. They have these rabid political student groups yeah. on the other side, and they're caught between the two. And the convenient and somewhat attractive short-term compromise would be, okay, we are going to incorporate anti-Semitism issues into the broader DEI framework. And yeah, but we're not going to address sort of the, the anti-white side of that, which still seems to be okay. I mean, I was looking, it was another, I think it was another Ivy or, you know, certainly top sort of 20 university. I was looking at, you know, if you took, basically it, the, the statistics were crazy. Like if you, you took the same student, you got rid of skin color uh, and you you took it, if you were white, you had like a 30% chance of getting in, but with the exact same credentials, if you checked off one of the other, white and Asian actually, Asian was actually discriminated more against than even white, but only, you know, only a couple of points. Uh, but if you took that same person and put any other demographic, Hispanic had a significantly, uh, you know, greater chance. And then if you were African-American beyond that, it was like you had like a 96% chance of getting in. But if you were a white or Asian with the exact same credentials, you were at like 36% acceptance rates. It, it was it was mind boggling. So you're right. I mean, is that going to be the compromise? You'd say, okay, we'll allow, you know, Jews to come into this fold because we're going to keep discriminating against everything else. And it's, it's a small enough thing that maybe it doesn't matter. Right. And I think that's, the, you know, that's the easy solution. And I can imagine it being attractive to some donors who's, um, particular focus is the anti-Semitism issue, but I think it's it's a failed course because like I said, the whole reason that the anti-Semitism thing is acceptable is that it exists within the broader framework in which anti 
white discrimination and racism is acceptable. And it just happens to be that within the Israel-Palestine conflict, the Jews are considered white and therefore they're the bad guys in, mm. in this framework. So the, the the that's the difficult aspect of your question is there is a short-term compromise and you know people are very attracted to short-term solutions. Well, they're, but, they're trying to get out from under fire, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that and that's the reality, right? We keep talking about Harvard, Penn, MIT, just because they were the ones that were, whether they were sort of you know, forced into testimony, but they're the ones that failed miserably under question answering some pretty basic stuff. I mean, it's right. it's literally hard to believe. I guess they had Wilmer Hale, like, you know, or Snow Wilmer, whatever it was, one of the big, you know, law firms giving them crisis management. And I mean, they do that knowing what's coming and they still failed so miserably. But the, the problem is that their feelings and what they said out loud is not just relegated to those three schools. It's probably across virtually a hundred percent, you know, of academia, with maybe the exception of like Liberty University and like Hillsdale College. Like you, you carve those out, and it's probably just that's common academic thought these days. There's no diversity of thought in these institutions, right? They they only want like sort of diversity in color and not in thought, and so. Right. You know, the, the the problem is definitely broader. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's important to be um, clear about, you know, what the context was in this congressional testimony that caused such controversy. You know, people on the one hand, you know, the, the one version of the controversy is, oh, these university officials refuse to. Um, say, you know, condemn these hypothetical uh, incidents of calls for genocide of Jews and so forth, whether that violates the speech codes at the universities. Now, it would be one thing, though, and I think uh, Jeb Rubenfeld actually had, uh, I saw a clip of his that I think expressed this point very well. It would be one thing if there were an actually consistently applied principle defense of free speech in the sense that, look, whatever speech is protected by the First Amendment, that speech is going to be protected on university grounds to the right. extent that calls even for something as horrific as genocide, if it's not, you know, a, a harassment or if it's not an actual call to immediate violence, if that's protected by the First Amendment, it's protected on campus. And that applies to any type of yeah. speech. If that were the actual posture, it would be one thing. But obviously, we know that's not the case, because whenever somebody even as like mild as like Charles Murray wants to give a speech at one of these universities, yeah. all hell breaks loose. And well, so it's, it's worse so that than that, right? Like, I mean, you know, yes, we got to be clear. The the recovery, the attempted recovery was about free speech, but the issue was never about free speech, right? When Elise Stefanik questioned her, you know, Congresswoman from New York questioned it, it was about, does it violate their code of conduct? Right. Okay, Not free speech. Right. Because and by the way, let's also not pretend it was ever about free speech, because I believe Harvard was ranked literally like the place that you could least express freedom of speech. These are the same people who led the charge for, you know, words are violence. And I have a feeling if it was me, even 25 years ago at Penn, OK, uh, saying, you know, calling for even hypothetically the genocide of the trans community. Uh, before people lost their minds, then or today, if it was me and like my frat boy buddies from the lacrosse team, uh, if we said that today, we'd be out like that. 
All right, there would be no ambiguity. There would be no chance for congressional testimony. We would get no trial. We would be thrown out on our asses. If this was about anyone else other than, again, uh, Jews, likely to your point, because they are also considered white and therefore it's okay to discriminate against them, if it was about any other of their favorite protected classes or sort of, you know, check marks, you would not be having this conversation because the people guilty of it would not have even had a chance before they were thrown out on their asses. Absolutely. And that's the thing. This is not very clearly not an issue of some kind of brave and principled defense of free speech saying, okay, the boundaries of speech in campus is the First Amendment. And that sort of informs their answer to these congressional uh, inquiries about, you know, genocide and so forth. It's it's not that at all. It's just so plainly um, hypocritical in terms of how they're applying this principle, which, you know, simply underscores the problem at the universities. You know, my position would be, I'd say we'd be better off if nobody is getting canceled for speech. The, yeah. you know, these people can say whatever they want about, you know, Israel and all this, but then people on the right and conservatives also are allowed to say what they want. They're allowed to invite speakers without interruption. That's, you know, that would be a much better- I I'm 100% fine. I've been fighting for that, but that's not the way it works, right? It, exactly. uh, everything's yeah. a problem. When, you know, when, you know, with the work I've done with Michael Seifert in Public Square, literally trying to create an alternate economy. How, how dare they, this is their weapon. I was like, excuse me, you've been canceling anyone on the right forever. Now that we simply don't want to give our hard-earned dollars to a woke company that's been funding left-wing causes and hates your guts and would put us in the gulags like wait now it's an extreme concept uh you know and that's just voting with your wallet it's whether we talk about the sponsors of this show or action you know build your own you don't like it build your own okay so we do you know right. we built public square and now it's, it's a radical platform for people i was like wait a minute you guys have been doing this to us in the public square forever now we simply say hey we're gonna play the same game as you and now you don't like it now, right. now they have a serious problem, and that's when you, they start all of a sudden magically talking about nuance. When they're very clear, uh, they want nothing to do with that kind of nuance uh, as long as they've been able to weaponize it to their gain. Yes. No, that's, that's very accurate. And, you know, another you know, question looming over this is, you know, we've identified these elite universities are a major component of American soft power. I think to such a degree that I have had sort of war game like um, conversations with people as to what were the various metrics and inflection points that would define whether China has in a meaningful respect surpassed the United States, mm -hmm. not just in economics, but just generally. And one would be if the elites of the world are fighting to send their kids to, you know, Peking University rather than Harvard. That would be a, a major metric to say, okay, U.S. is left in the dust. Yeah. These universities are very important. And, the, you know, they, you know, we see all this woke nonsense, but there's also real stuff going on. And, uh, you know, Harvard, for better or worse, and MIT, they have first picked of the most talented people in the world. And, you know, they can get away with a lot of this nonsense because of that. But there's a question of how... How sustainable is this? How far yeah. can they push it? And China, you know, the, to, to continue with the China example, the Chinese are, you know, I think lucky us that this is the case. Um, the Chinese are not as 
enterprising um, and creative as to you know how to exploit this issue. I think if the yeah. Chinese were to say, okay, we're dedicating hundreds of billions of dollars to creating universities that will be a safe haven for otherwise cast away academics, highly talented academics. So instead of going to Harvard and getting yeah. canceled and, or if you're a really talented white guy who got denied uh, because of the DI policies, come to the Chinese university, we'll give you a full scholarship and this or that. If they really implemented a serious long-term plan along those lines, it could be very bad for us. And we're already at the stage where we're seeing the fruits of this sort of DEI inflected mm -hmm. culture. America canceled, this is a while ago, 10 years ago, but not too, too long ago. America canceled its most distinguished living scientist. James Watson, who discovered the structure of DNA. We literally canceled him. He was banned from his own laboratory. In fact, he was beaten down to such a state of impecuniousness that he had to auction off his Nobel Prize. And it was actually a Russian who took such pity on him, some Russian oligarch, who bought his Nobel Prize and gave it back to him. It, it is such a sad story of what America has done to, but it's symbolic and it indicates this really dangerous direction we've gone in that's hostile to merit and free expression. Yeah. And yes, we still have a lot of comparative advantages, but those don't last forever if we continue along this trajectory. Yeah, Fauci is the leader of medicine in America. Now he's clearly, you know, at best a journeyman scientist. He was just better at being a bureaucrat. He was better at snaking and screwing someone else who maybe came up with something else, or he pulled their funding so that they could never surpass whatever he was doing. It was, you know, no more obvious example than Wuhan lab leak theory. Like, of course it came from the lab that studies the virus in question, you know, but if you said that as an academic, you know, your funding was pulled, your research grants were gone, and therefore he got to control the narrative. He was never the best, he was probably always at, at best average if... It, honestly, at best average, uh, probably less than that. But if you played the game, you know how to work the cameras, you know how to work a soundbite, and you're willing to screw other talent to maintain that hegemony at the top, um, it wouldn't matter. And so we're, we're definitely we're definitely screwing ourselves in the process because of these things. And I think he's the perfect example of that. Absolutely, absolutely. And sadly, he's not the only example by any means, but he is. Yeah a particularly aggravating example, to be sure. So you've obviously been at the top of a lot of other things with Revolver News. Uh, you've been at the at really the center uncovering the January 6th, what I call the Fed surrection, right? I mean, it's been a while since you were on, but man, the sound bites I hear every week, uh, you know, well, the FBI, we don't want to release the videos because it would uh, show way too many of our officers, like, in the crowd, I'm like, wait a minute. So you're there, <laughs> you're there. We're to believe you weren't instigating, but you also did nothing to prevent anything from happening. I mean, it it's lunacy. It, yeah. It's absolute lunacy. You're lying before Congress. Could you give us some of the latest updates uh, of what you've uncovered and what are some of the missing puzzle pieces? Right there, you know, we're we're getting it. It's so flagrant now. Uh, you know, we understand why they never wanted the video out because. The exculpatory evidence would be useful to the prisoners who've been denied due process, but it would also show what everyone's been saying. You know, yet another conspiracy theory turned out to be 100% true because it was always the most plausible. They've always been the bad actors, but we, we just can't actually show it. I mean, can you tell us what's been going on there? 
Absolutely. You know, this is it's uh, one of the first major pieces that we published on this FedSurrection. Now, by now, it was years ago. But we opened up the piece with an exchange between Senator Klobuchar and Christopher Ray, in which Klobuchar asks, right, she's she kind of a rhetorical type question. She says, you know, don't you guys just kick yourselves that you didn't have any informants in place and you weren't able to stop it? And Christopher Ray answers in a very kind of lawyer-like way to seem like he's accepting the premise of her question that they didn't have any. But he says, look, you can be darn tootin' that we're, you know, we would wish we had people in there. We wish we could have stopped this and so forth. But as you point out, through the years now, we've learned time and time again, going all the way back to years, you know, long report from the New York Times acknowledging that just in the one Proud Boys organization, militia group, there was extensive infiltration and that, in fact, there were informants going into the Capitol and informing to the FBI in real time as to what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, there's another major case that I believe we've talked about um, the last time I, I was here, the case of Jeremy Brown, who had a misdemeanor trespassing charge that the aggressive DOJ was able to transform into a felony charge for which he's facing seven years. And what he and and they they only added on that stuff over a year later. What did he do to aggravate them so much? He published footage he had of um, joint terrorism task force agents trying to recruit him months before January 6th. So they clearly I mean, yeah. they're trying to recruit him to inform on the Oath Keepers month before. And it was clear from the context of the conversation, they knew something was going down. Now we're getting all sorts of information about all sorts of agencies, not just the FBI, but the DHS, but, you know, military organizations and so forth, local police organizations that they've heard all of this chatter from all of these groups about things going on in January 6th. We reported on the hippies for Trump bus. There was a bus stop the day before January 6th on the 5th with explosives and other material. And one of the people on that bus was one of the, you know, uh, an active participant in January 6th. They weren't detained clearly because he was at January 6th. And even when things like that happen, and this was right by the Department of Justice building on the day before, Nancy Pelosi and her crew continued to deny Trump's repeated requests for additional security on that day. So just all of these components that have been around for a long time for people paying attention are just getting reinforced and corroborated over and over and over again as new material comes to light all adding up to a renewed sense of invigorated sense of confidence that this is indeed, it's not an insurrection, it's far worse than that, it's a Fedsurrection. And it's not simply that they knew about it and didn't do anything, which would be bad yeah. enough, but all evidence points to critical, the role of critical provocateurs who enabled this rally, otherwise rally, to turn into a riot through certain critical actions. So yeah. it's a fedsurrection. And I think it's important to understand the context that the regime 
put so much stock in this. The stakes are so high because the narrative of the domestic terror insurrection of MAGA people was going to be the basis, the pretext for accelerating the weaponization of the national security state against us, the weaponization of the security apparatus against us. So the stakes couldn't be higher for that. And unfortunately, the truth has come out. I'm proud to have played a part in that. A big it, role, a big part it, of it. And it has severely disrupted this narrative in which the regime has invested a tremendous amount of time and energy to shove their version of events down our throats every day for years. And now the people just don't buy it. More and okay, more. I, so I get that. And I, I think the people watching this show don't buy it. But honestly, like, I still see way too much silence from the Republicans. Like, they, again, it's Wuhan lab leak theory. Like, there yeah. is no other plausible response, right? It's yeah. the first unarmed insurrection in the history of the world. Like, whatever disdain you have for federal law enforcement, that leadership, your government, like, it's not enough at this point. And yet, and yet, I don't even see that many Republicans talking about it. I mean, it, right. there, there, there's a couple. There's a mm -hmm. couple of people who get it. There's a, you know, but like, man, it's it's a tiny handful. And when they're on, they're saying, oh, we couldn't possibly release the video of the FBI agents literally not just being there, but doing nothing and worse, instigating, pushing people in a crowd, getting them fired up, doing this and then doing nothing, opening the door, but running with a narrative for two years that they somehow broke at the door. It, it never ends. And yet there's not enough people on our side actually talking about what's going on. This isn't conspiratorial anymore. There's no other plausible response. Uh, you know, they, how, these people pushing it's it, well, literally, Darren, it's worse than 9-11 and Pearl Harbor since we just had the anniversary of that a couple of days ago. I mean, it's significantly worse than all of that. I'm like, I don't know. The only person that was killed was Ashley Babbitt by someone who, in my opinion, clearly uh, didn't know how to use a firearm and panicked, uh, who had a long record of bad uh, firearms handling and who probably wasn't qualified and all of these things. You're not allowed to say that because they paraded him out there, at, you know, as a hero. Like that guy might as have he might as well have been awarded the, you know, the received the Congressional Medal of Honor, even though it's clear based on anything we've seen, it's all been a big lie. But other than you, other than me, other than a couple people, perhaps here on Rumble. No one's talking about it. They're, they're not even willing to have that conversation yet, which is scary because it means we're too far gone to actually get it back. Now, you make a really good point, and this gets to an issue that I've experienced. Is there's, you know, there's something I call the playpen. The playpen is the space of safe discourse, even kind of safe partisan debate and criticism. And I think overwhelmingly, most Republican elected officials, they want to stay in the playpen of safe issues. And, you know, that can involve some of those safe issues are also important. Like I think, yeah. you know, attacking socialism, that's kind of a safe issue for an elected Republican, but it's also important. Yeah. Um, and then it's also kind of the performative stuff of saying like, well, we'll look at, you know, AOC's dress and this kind of stuff. But then there's stepping outside of the playpen and the Fedsurrection story has always existed outside of the playpen because it to full to address it involves stirring up the hornet's nest and it gets to the complicated relationship that Repu uh, republicans have with the security state yeah. 
Yeah. And it's not an accident that most of the elected officials who have um, been brave enough to address this also happen to kind of be the MAGA corner, with some yeah. exceptions like Thomas Massey. I wouldn't consider him a MAGA official, but no. to his credit, he's been at the forefront of um, pushing the Fed's erection stuff, pushing the Ray Epps stuff, pushing the pipe bomb stuff. And so I commend well, what, what about simultaneously the 702 stuff that's coming up, right? I mean, the, yeah. that was the, you know, the apparatus by which all of this started. And there's Republicans. Well, no, we, we got to continue it. We just got to let it roll. I'm like, wait a minute. All right, all right. Like, if you want to spy on Iran and our enemies, do whatever you want. But like, okay. when you leave every possible window open to do it on American citizens, after the total lack of goodwill that you should have with the American citizens based on the abuse of said power, uh, they're strangely quiet about that. And I sort of link it all in there. Like, wait a minute. Like, how how are you okay with continuing those things as is? For seven years, they were clearly weaponized. It was probably weaponized way before that. It was just Trump derangement syndrome that brought it all out because it was so ridiculous. It was so abused that now everyone sees exactly what it is. Doesn't that tie into it as well? Absolutely. And, you know, it gets into the you know general question of the relationship between Republican Party, Republican elected officials and the national security state, which is a complicated relationship. I mean, so much of what we now recognize as the national security bureaucracy, including a host of NGOs, were set up under the Reagan administration to prosecute the Cold War. And so that, you know, the National Endowment for Democracy, you know, what all of these sort of democracy type groups that are obsessed with Russia now, um, most of them were set up under Reagan's tenure for Cold War purposes. And then, of course, there was Bush, who uh, further enhanced, dramatically enhanced the national security apparatus to prosecute the war on terror. Now, whatever one thinks of those two separate things, the third iteration that we're in now is one in which all of those tools are being weaponized domestically yeah. against conservatives, but the the relationships still remain. And there's such a powerful overlap between sort of the never Trump or never Trump adjacent elements of the party, because let's face it, like yeah. the GOP has never fully come to terms with Donald Trump. No. They sort of had to tolerate it because he's so popular he's so yeah no it's why they're giving so a voice powerful. to liz cheney right now trump's exactly. gonna be a dictator i'm like wait a minute like if there's one person that's functioning as a dictator it's the democrats they're weaponized doj they're trying to censor uh americans they're trying to jail their political opponents they have jailed people who just don't agree with them who are non-violent dissidents like uh they're doing that and you you, you mentioned sort of Bush, but you know, Dick Cheney are arguably one of the biggest architects of that disaster in the Iraq war and all of these things. His daughter, uh, they're giving a platform to the same people who really, really hated Dick Cheney. His daughter's not that different. If not, if anything, right. she's maybe worse. Uh, and they're telling, you know, they're giving her a platform to say that Trump's a dictator when like, at, wait a minute, like, is anyone not putting this connection together? I mean, it's so ridiculous, and yet, but you're right. It doesn't matter because they've never accepted that. They sort of want to get through the Trump years, whether it's another four years or, you know, for them, I imagine, preferably sooner, and they can get back to business as usual. They can lose. They can give up our country. Eventually, we'll be, you know, a communist state because that's what the Democratic Party is today. It's not, they're not Democrats. They're Marxists. They're worse. Uh, and 
they're not even hiding that anymore, and yet they're willing to go along with that because, you know, they'll get a board seat at Raytheon, they'll have a six-figure retirement that they don't really deserve because they're not really competent and haven't actually accomplished anything, but, you know, they're in power and they can do that. They'll send our kids to die in a war so they can get a couple extra more bucks as part of that board seat package retirement plan. You know, it's not their kids that are going to be dying, it's yours. Exactly, and look, like you mentioned Raytheon and, you know, Boeing can go into that, and of course, you can't say Boeing without thinking of Nikki Haley. Of course. Uh, you know, the... The, the uh, new favorite seven, child of uh, the, the establishment, yes. The 737 Max candidate. I don't know if that corresponds <laughs> with her tenure, but it might as well. And But, you know, her whole biography, perfectly instantiated. This is this is what they wanted. This is what what the, the, the evil, horrible Trump robbed them of because Nikki Haley was supposed to be the story. Nikki Haley was supposed yeah. to be the future. It was her turn Republican all of a sudden. Party. They, they it, decide that, it, not the voters. If it, if it hadn't been for Trump, they, they're thinking, oh, Nikki Haley would be it. And then they say, okay, we have to make some concessions to uh, Trump just by virtue of his sheer popularity. So we, even though we'd really love Nikki Haley, we have to make some concessions. So let's do this thing called, we'll, we'll tell, we'll tell the plebs, we'll tell these uninformed plebs, we'll tell them it's still Trumpism, but just without Trump. And we'll get, we'll get DeSantis and we'll give him the script. And then, you know, we'll have to hold our nose a little bit because some of the things he says will be, you know, uh, uh, you know, too much for us, but that's, that's the best we can get. Of course. But, but don't worry, we got a billion dollars that will change his mind in three days. As soon as it's been weaponized against the MAGA, you know, actually like America first peoples. But uh, you mentioned, exactly. you mentioned Boeing, you mentioned the 37, uh, 737s like revolver news your agency also did a deep dive and this one's truly scary into the worsening uh you know aviation safety crisis i mean there's been a huge spike in near collision at airports around the country it's these kinds of stories that clearly aren't being covered what's going on there i imagine it's dei strikes again uh, and then some we've seen it at the airlines we're seeing it with air traffic control and you know i, I don't know like I don't care if my pilot is green, if they're purple, if they're blue, if they're the best pilot, that's who I want in charge uh, of the stick if something goes wrong when I'm at 36,000 feet. And given that I do, you know, a couple hundred thousand miles a year and travel, uh, you know, this is something that, you know, the odds are I run into before the average traveler. What is going on in aviation and just how bad is it? This is a really important story. One of our major pieces uh, in the past several months, it's called Crash Landing. And as you say, it, it does a deep dive into a very, very disturbing development within uh, aviation industry in the United States, particularly within the air traffic control system. And the interesting thing about that is, you know, most of these problems affecting the country could say, okay, well, the one percent or whatever you want to call it they can get out of these problems they you know public transportation is destroyed in the united states well you know people can just have their own private cars and such um the airlines are you know gone to crap oh you can just fly private and this sort of thing but the interesting thing about this issue is you, nobody can get out of it because even if you're flying a private 
you're still beholden to the decisions of air traffic controllers. Yeah, <laughs> like, if they, as, as a licensed pilot myself, like if they run you into a pattern that's full, it's a problem. If they exactly. have you land on a runway that's not clear because they didn't think or can't multitask or whatever, I mean, that is a high stress job. Right. That is not a job, uh, you know, to give to you know the lowest bidder or the lowest IQ individual. That's not how right. it works. I mean. Nor should it be, but it, it it doesn't seem to matter. Like it's not right. DEI, you know. Hey, we could talk about academia, you know. I guess you know whatever. It doesn't. It, it's going to affect our children and their learning. But like you know, people aren't going to run into a wall going 500 miles an hour. Right. No. I mean, this. The reason I mentioned that this affects everybody, including you know the the very wealthy flying private, is that you know there's this theory that I think in some contexts is partially true that. You know, the, the DEI thing is kind of a let them eat cake type issue. OK, we'll let you know, we'll let the, uh, you know, the the lower classes suffer the negative effects of the DEI. But the people with money and connections can kind of cordon themselves off from most of the negative consequences. And so there's an inference from that that there's not really genuine belief behind the madness. And again, I think yeah. there's some partial truth to that. But the fact that we've allowed um, the DEI disaster to erode the basic standards behind air traffic control and therefore affect everyone's safety, including the people flying private, including all these, you know, elites and so forth, shows just how insane it's gotten. Because you'd think if it were more of this kind of cynical approach to things, you say, okay, well, We'll we'll save the DEI stuff maybe for the airline commercials. We'll save it maybe for the basket weaving courses. But when it comes to the maintenance of critical infrastructure, like having airplanes not collide into each other, that's a special exception we'll make and just hire on the basis of merit. But no, <laughs> Obama actually is responsible for a complete overhaul in the vetting and hiring standards applicable to air traffic controllers, yeah. such that they used to have a pure merit-based sort of SAT system. They revolutionized it in order to implement what they call um, bio-questionnaires, which is just this really dumb method of ensuring that you test nothing. And there have been PhDs who've proven the remarkable thesis that the less substantive things you actually test, the fewer, uh, 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 the, the less disparate impact you have racially. So when you get to the point where the test- So what, what, are, some, nothing, what are some of these <laughs> diversity initiatives? I mean, I got, I got to hear about like what, what it is. Oh, I read about that Obama test. I don't know enough about the details, but it was literally like, if you dropped out of school, like you got more points. Like, I, I, crazy, like, right. absolutely insane. Like, again, you know, everyone wants those people to have a job, but maybe not guiding aircraft moving through space at 500 miles an hour, you know, in close proximity to one another. Right. No, I mean, you're thinking, you know, at second thought, maybe we should let them into, you know, Disney World, because at least they're not in the air traffic controllers. Exactly. Maybe they can do less damage, you know, playing Mickey Mouse or something like that. But no, that's it's true. And this story is very long. It's it's very involved. We talked to many people within the air traffic control community, current and retired. We talked to spokespeople. And the bottom line here is there's the Obama era um, overhaul that completely transformed the vetting mechanisms for employment away from merit into diversity hiring. This has had a tremendous impact on the quality 
of air traffic controllers. But then there's been also a dramatic hit in quantity as a result of their COVID era policies, including by inference, the vaccine mandates, which um, pilots did not like. And there was a dramatic acceleration of retirements in the COVID, but also a hiring freeze as a result of COVID. So one of our first major studies in Revolver was a cost benefit of analysis using the metric life years of the COVID lockdowns. And it showed that there's actually an order of magnitude um, worse in terms of loss of life years uh, under the lockdown policies of Fauci. But in that, we didn't even take into account the possibility of things like COVID hiring freezes could ultimately result in the next major aviation disaster. And the numbers behind these are quite dramatic. In the past 10 years, there's been a doubling of what they call uh, near runway incursions of two airplanes nearly colliding into each other in the runway. And there's been a similar increase of near mid-air collisions. And so just given the numbers, it's only a matter of time. And in fact, the New York Times, to its credit, has taken an interest in this issue. And in particular, one near-miss situation um, in the Austin airport, which has had particularly acute I have problems. a feeling that's going to have a woker problem than somewhere like, you know, you know, somewhere in Oklahoma. One would one would think, yes. And but the thing is, there's this one air traffic controller. And these these aren't like, you know, it is a complicated job. But of course, this guy, this guy made a very simple, egregious error that came within milliseconds of costing hundreds of people their their lives. And guess what? He's still working. He's still working. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's, and you know, you can guess it's, it's a, I'll just say it's a likely diversity higher based on the profile. Yeah, and that's the reality. I mean, I imagine if you track down the statistics and the increase, the 50% up or the doubling of, you know, of these incidents, it's not from the people who've been there for 25 years, who are pilots themselves, who've been doing it and who were hired under a merit-based system. And just one really funny anecdote from a former spokesperson who has given us the party line, which is frankly ridiculous across all dimensions. But the funniest thing he said was because we were talking to air traffic controllers like, oh, my, the quality is, you know, crap. Everything's, you know, really going downhill here. So we asked the, the former spokesperson and his answer is, no, actually, these new cohorts we're hiring are more qualified because they grew up playing more sophisticated video games. I'm not making that up. <laughs> I mean, nothing surprises me anymore. So it, 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 it doesn't matter. I mean, but yeah, listen, the world has lost its mind. But like, so are, are you seeing, you know, any broader shifts away from wokeism in major institutions? I mean, I, you know, maybe the best example is sort of Elon Musk taking direct aim at media matters, right? They're, they're not an organization that's checking advertisers. No, they, they've designed to weaponize to hurt their political foes uh, right. with advertiser boycotts. I mean, do you see any parallels between sort of the ethos of the America First movement and what Elon Musk is doing, you know, at X? Um, absolutely. There are not only parallels, but there are also, I think, really powerful complementarities because I think... Elon shows what can get done within the private sector. There are inherent encumbrances that come with trying to make change through government. And, you know, you know Trump experienced that more than anyone, that these bureaucracies are um, viciously resistant to any type of 
change. And so that's its own sort of ball game is trying to change things from within government. Elon took a very you know different approach. One approach would be through government trying to restore free speech on the internet. Elon took the kind of hostile takeover approach to Twitter, which I think has you know not been perfect, but it's been a major positive. So I think next to Trump, Elon's sort of political awakening, his um, acting upon that awakening, and his being one of the very rare billionaires. You know, your father being yeah. other one very rare that's the one thing that's so frustrating to a lot of people to see just you'd think the more money you have the more bold you are but with most people the more money they have the more they have to lose and why rock the system when you're already doing very well so there's actually a reluctance to shake things up because very few people even with a lot of money aspire to a glory um, an achievement beyond that. And I think Elon is someone who thinks in civilization terms. And so that kind of emboldens him to take the, to really step into the arena the way he has. Whether it's going to be enough, I think the jury is still yeah. out on that. There's a lot of inertia. There's a lot of bureaucratic incompetence, I think. Oh, and they're they're trying to take them out like they did Trump. Yeah. I mean, there's no question, right? You got all of corporate weaponizing. You see the advertisers still pulling it right now. They're more right. than happy to, you know, to support, you know, people who are doing like pedophile stuff. And that doesn't really matter. But, you know, Elon Musk is rocking the boat. And I always said it with my father. I mean, that's why we all have to sort of become unafraid. It's why like doing this and I'm always like, hey, like, share, subscribe this stuff so that people see it outside of the box because if we all go forward with this mentality understanding what's going on it's harder to cancel but we know whether you're trump as president you know the most powerful man in the world is no no these people can still cancel you they can still cancel elon musk it was you know richest man in the world i guess until recently and all of this stuff and they're going to try we need to sort of band together to make sure that doesn't happen you can't do that with one two three twelve twenty powerful people, you need, you know, 150 million Americans, uh, you know, also getting behind them to prevent it from happening, to get it, to get that message out there, to make sure that people are aware and that they see it. Otherwise, they'll keep taking those people out. They'll keep taking out the Trumps of the world. They'll keep trying to take out the Elons of the world, which will create even more incentive for no one else to ever attempt to rock the boat. And that's when we get into apathy and a serious problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's nobody, you know, people think I'll step in there and I'll avoid the pain. I can find some creative way. If you step into the arena, you will face what I call the pain box. And, you know, most people are not psychologically constituted to face. I think one of, you know, your father's remarkable in many respects, but I think one of the maybe most unusual traits he has is this just superhuman ability to withstand stress coming from all sides as though it's like it's nothing <laughs> you know it's it's really amazing and the reality is that you you can't you can't really teach that you have to be constituted in that way but you don't need an outlier that extreme to you know play some part in it but and i think ultimately you know that's what gives things meaning i think elon understands that yes you know you can be very wealthy but you know there's there are other things you know there's there're higher levels to that the levels of glory the levels of fighting for civilization um, you know, not just on Earth, but in, you know, uh, Elon's thinking in galactic terms. And, you know, unless we yeah. figure out the DEI <laughs> question here, you know, we're, what, we're in, we have no chance of getting to Mars. And so all of these things are are very connected. And it's just it's such a shame. What a waste. The whole 
diversity program has been. You know, if we had dedicated, you know, since in the past half century, the same amount of time, the same amount of resources, the same amount of just focus on building civilization as we had, you know, trying to force diversity in every place. Um, it's remarkable to think where we could be. And yeah, we, we'd probably be on Mars already. Exactly. But 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 we ain't we ain't getting there with uh you know DEI astronauts and third rate physicists and you know bad mechanical engineers and it's just not going to happen. But uh you know but that's where we are today. Right. And you know it's 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 one of these weird things. You know DEI is clearly driving things into the ground and I think a lot of the more sophisticated people behind DEI understand that and I think some of them think that emerging technologies will be powerful enough to make up the difference. So, you know, maybe there's a DEI to, you know, collapse in quality at uh, air traffic control, but once AI is sophisticated enough, you won't really need competent people. I think yeah, there's- Yeah, but, a, but a, AI is doing the same thing. I mean, we've seen, right. you know, AI being taken over. Wow, exactly. you know, we got we got inclusive AI. Like, so wait, so it's artificial right. intelligence that that's hamstrung by, by DEI, or by, you know, woke mindset. So you can't really tell the truth. And we're going to make sure that, you know, we give someone the added benefit of the doubt because they've been somehow magically oppressed uh, along the way. Uh, and you see that happening even in AI. And, you know, I, I know Elon, if we're talking about him, he was concerned about the future uh, of AI. And I, I think that's, it's very scary. But I don't think our enemies, whether it's Russia, China, or Iran, they're not going to hamstring uh, AI with DEI requirements like we would here in the United States. And like that would leave us in the dust, the way this is developing and how quickly that's developing. That that in and of itself is very scary. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, my understanding is, you know, China in, in certain key respects has already surpassed us in oh, AI. Sure they have. And they have inherent advantages just because, you know, AI is largely sort of data driven and they have billions of people to work with and they're and they're even more of a surveillance state than we are you know albeit slightly but we're, we're, you know, we're yeah we're much worse than we realize uh but i think people are waking that up you know waking up to that every day yes yes so how, darren you know, how do you these... view the 2024 race right now if we're going to talk about that because that, that you know a big part of that and a big part of our future is going to be dependent on sort of what happens there you know are you optimistic are you pessimistic what are what are going to be the big challenges what are what's going to be the nonsense that the democrats come up with this time to try to you know manipulate an election are you concerned about you know rfk jr and a third party run yeah where, where are you on all of that right now for 2024 um i'm not particularly concerned with rfk jr i think it's still ambiguous as to what ultimate effect um if any that would have i think the the two main questions are how far will they be willing to go to stop Trump? Because they've gone pretty, <laughs> pretty damn far. far already. Yeah. They've gone pretty damn far already. And he's a shoe in for the for the nomination. Most polls that I've seen suggest that he would clobber Biden in a general election situation. So this is a really dangerous time for for the Democrats. They probably thought, OK, well, we'll be. And, you know, no. So there's that problem. Clearly, what they've done isn't working. And in many cases, it's actually backfired. Um, the whole, you know, Ron DeSantis op was, you know, dead in the water. And they thought that would be a big thing. Well, that was a complete failure. 
So that's that's where we are on the Republican side. But on the Democrat side, it's it's arguably even worse for the Democrats because they're caught in this situation where Biden's increasingly a liability. He's looking worse and worse. It's less and less plausible, just the imagination to think of somebody like that actually running for president again, much less, you know, serving a second term in the Oval Office. But as I pointed out, there are they face a very difficult strategic problem because the more the Hunter stuff comes to the fore, ironically, the more Joe Biden wants to cling to the presidency and yeah. the pardon power that comes with it. So to the extent that people thought that they could intimidate him out of office by sort of amplifying the hundreds of it has the opposite effect, I would. Think. That's a really good point. I've never thought about it. I mean, I, obviously, he's going to pardon him. He's going to sit there. But if some of these things drag out longer than that, which by any reasonable measure they could, yep. uh, that creates a serious problem uh, for him. And again, Right now, it's not a problem for him because, I, you know, I think the DOJ is doing Hunter a favor, as I sort of stated in my opening monologue tonight. Like, all of the things that Hunter Biden did, like, the only things he's not charged with are literally the dozens of things where Joe is a recipient, a participant, uh, someone who got 10% for the big guy, someone who's getting wire transfers. It's only the Hunter stuff. Uh, right. You know, so clearly the DOJ is running cover for Joe Biden as they have Right. Uh, th this is actually, you know, barely. No, but it's an indictment. He could go to jail. Like uh, he should be going to jail for thirty x what he what he could possibly get from this. They're just not going there. Right. Well, not yet. But the very possibility that they could, yeah. I think, uh, it makes you know, Joe Biden more kind of jealous of the powers of the presidency, so to speak. And then there's the problem that the heir apparent should Biden step aside is completely untenable. And that is Kamala Harris. And everybody knows that. But passing her over creates a whole host of difficulties uh, with, you know, the fact that she's a woman of color and this could aggravate the Democrat base on top of Biden already stirring up the base by being perceived, believe it or not, as too pro-Israel from the perspective of a lot of the radical base on the left. So he's already kind of in the doghouse for that. Yeah. So to, to step over Kamala is another problem. And then there's a question of even if you were to step over, who do you put in her place? And so these are really kind of, there's no elegant solution to this as of yet, at least that I could think of. And I think if they'd have thought of it, they would have implemented it now. So the question of how that all works out is one of the big ones. And then the question of what else are they going to do to Trump now that all of the stuff they've already done hasn't worked? Those, I think, are the two critical questions here in relation to 2024, because I think it's fair to say if the election were today between Trump and Biden, Trump would win, you know, just hands down. Yeah. So my father, you know, they, they've been doing this. You know, he's going to be a dictator, according to Liz Cheney, uh, the, the the daughter of Darth Vader, uh, you know, and the Atlantic and the mainstream media and the Washington Post. I mean, they've been doing that dictator narrative. I think he dispels it, you know, very quickly. He had it sort of perfectly. It did it perfectly in the Hannity town hall where he's like, no, I'm not going to be a dictator just on day one where we shut down our border and we start drilling again to you know save our energy uh, and, and save us from the insanity that's going on down there. You know, can you give us, you know, what else would be part of your sort of day one agenda for a second Trump administration? You know, that's a great question. The irony of the whole dictator thing is, is that a dictator in its original sort of 
Roman context is precisely what we need. And, the, you know, there was actually accountability for dictators. Um, and, you know, the, the, uh, the, the left and the regime, they're the ones who enjoy a complete lack of accountability. So there, you know, even a dictator would be a vast improvement over what we actually have now in the precise sense of the term. But as for, you know, what, what Trump should do, I think, you know, his, policy proposals, his policy speeches have all been excellent. He he knows what to do in terms of addressing the censorship issue. I think one of the main things he's going to have to do is address the lawfare that's coming from the, the regime and take that very seriously because he can't yeah. we can't be in a position where every, you know, president running as a Republican who threatens to actually change things has to face criminal indictments. So yeah. that needs to be addressed. And we published a major piece on on how on how that could be approached. And I think also he needs to take on the DEI bureaucracy. So there's the national security bureaucracy that he's been taking on the swamp, but the DEI swamp in particular needs to be a needs to be a reckoning with some of the offshoots of the civil rights law that have put us in a position that is frankly disastrous and completely uncompetitive. Mm -hmm. um, so those would be the main things that I would I would suggest. Right, so you, you've led this charge on sort of taking on the mainstream media. You know, I've done it with MXM News. You've done it with Revolver News. I'm an aggregator. You guys are actually out there chasing down real stories and doing it. Is the so-called mainstream media dead? I mean, it seems like more than ever outlets, NBC, ABC, the New York Times, the Washington Post. I mean, they have less control of the narrative. They're trying desperately, and perhaps that desperation reeks so much that it's actually sort of perpetuating their own demise. But, you know, where does that stand right now? What are you seeing, you know, on, on the forefront of that fight? Because it, it, it has been a problem that's been going on for a long time. That's... Um, that's an interesting question. And yes, I think the, the mainstream media is definitely weakened um, and suffered reputational damage and deservedly so, uh, particularly since, you know, Trump came into the came into the scene and correctly identified them as fake news. But now that I'm thinking about it, I'll, the distinction occurred to me between a kind of credibility crisis, which I think they have, and a legitimacy crisis. Credibility crisis pertains to whether people actually believe anymore what they're told by the media. And I think that is a real thing. I think there is a certain amount of legitimacy crisis, but not as much as you think. And I give an explanation for that, that even if people don't really buy what the New York Times is saying, there's still a sense that once the New York Times says it, now it's been properly admitted into the domain of consensus discourse. It's only when the New York Times says it that it becomes, you know, we could all know it well in advance, but it's all the, the New York Times still has that legitimacy in terms of functioning as the stamp of approval that allows it to become sort of common domain consensus such that we can all talk about this thing as though it were real. Um, and that type of legitimacy is perfectly compatible with, you know, uh, dwindling credibility, plummeting credibility. 
Um, and I think that dynamic hasn't been sufficiently explored. I think, and I think that applies to varying degrees across the mainstream media, although New York Times is sort of the flagship of that, mm -hmm. which is why I use them as an example. And then sort of at the conservative side, I still think, um, unfortunately, that Fox News has a tremendous amount of power and it's almost sort of by default. And again, it's like, this is the default thing. A lot of you know, older folks in particular, they just watch and it doesn't matter what's on the team, you know, it just, yeah, and I so, uh, so I think there are two versions of the story. You can tell a perfectly valid story that Fox News has taken a hit and that's true. But then there's also the story of how remarkably robust it is given how much it's screwed up. And that's a robustness that comes simply by virtue of, you know, the power of cable television. Um, so that would be my sort of mixed answer to that question. I got you. But you, okay, so I saw what you know Fox News clearly did for Ron DeSantis for two years, right? They, they, you know, I'll, I'll call it one, you know, maybe the greatest all-time fluffing in the world. And yet it doesn't seem, you know, we who knows? We're still thirty something days out from the Iowa caucuses. Right. Who knows? Maybe he pulls off the miracle they're all hoping for. But it didn't seem to move the needle much for him there, or it did initially, and then it sort of faded away because eventually you have to sort of stand up on your own. Does Ron DeSantis have a future in politics after sort of this campaign, after the flip-flopping, after, you know, if he doesn't, you know, magically overperform, you know, what happens next? Yeah, that's a great question. No, I think, you know, notwithstanding what I just said about the uh, tremendous power of Fox News. Even Fox News <laughs> can't make Ron DeSantis an attractive candidate. <laughs> oh, well, they, they, they tried hard. I was watching. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I, you know, I knew he wasn't, you know, because I said, hey, I, in 2018, I did like 30 events with him. I opened for him. I closed for him. I did that. Yeah. And it's like, just wait till you see him in long form. I mean, they they anointed him president before he had spoken for more than 15 seconds in front of a real crowd. And you realize like, oh, wait a minute. He doesn't have that you know, on your feet, you know, uh, sort of responses that Trump has or that, you know, frankly, so many of the other, uh, you know, candidates have. You see that in sort of the debate performances. It's just incredibly uh, uncomfortable. So, you know, what happens next? So, yeah, for DeSantis, I mean, I can't really prognosticate other than to say that he has no uh, presidential future, um, you know, as to whether, you know, and, and it's sad because, look, you know, I thought he was a good governor of Florida and he should have yeah. stayed governor. And I wish he had realized that. And because it's such a waste because you see someone who could do well, you know, relative. I know he wasn't a perfect governor and all that, but who yeah. could do well in a relative context if he understood his place and his limitations and where to but. Yeah, no, now I think that's fair. And you know, now he's been campaigning for a year. He's been in Iowa basically exclusively. But guess what? You know, Florida was fine, and we've had an absentee governor. You, li you live here. Right. I live here. You know, uh, you know. I guess he wasn't, you know, there when Fort Lauderdale, where you live and stuff like that, was flooded. And, you know, he was, he was in Iowa. And, right. you know, it was the perpetual, the longest book tour in the right. history of book tours that turned into a presidential campaign. You know, and yet, I guess... In a place like Florida, you do have people that sort of just believe what we believe and we believe in that freedom. So it's sort of OK, even right. if you do have an absentee governor, at least for now. I don't think right. that lasts for now, forever. For now, but, you know, and the thing is, is that, you know, it's I give them credit for the, the COVID stuff to a degree just because. But when you think about it, it's such a low standard. It's like you become a great governor by not completely destroying the economy. Yeah, exactly. It's only by virtue of the other governors being so like incredibly 
bad. Like how it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand, you know, you don't shut down the state over COVID. Yeah. That's not rocket science. That shouldn't be like, that should just be common sense to everybody yeah. and apply across the board. But the unfortunate reality is it wasn't. And he, to some degree, stood up to that. And that's, that was, you know, that was good. But no, I think he's dramatically um, uh, depleted his his political capital to the point where there's precious little left. And I don't see any sign of that stopping, frankly. Like yeah. there were various off ramps that he could have taken. Um, and he's resisted that for one reason or another. So I don't know how many more off ramps, if any, he'll he'll have to take. So, yeah. you know, we'll just have to con continue to watch this train wreck. Oh, Darren, I really appreciate you being here as always. Guys, make sure to go check out Revolver News and the other things that Darren is working on. I mean, they're, they're ahead of the game on a lot of these stories. They're breaking actual uh, real news. They're doing the work that we all uh, want and probably would expect from our mainstream that's never going to be covered that way. So always an awesome guest. Darren, thanks so much for being here. Again, check him out at Revolver News. Awesome, guys. With that, thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, check out what we're doing here. You can also download the show on Spotify. You can get it on iTunes podcast. That way, if you're not watching live or if you get your podcast when you're traveling or in your car, you never miss an episode and you can catch up on your back episodes. Also, don't forget to check out our incredible sponsors. If they have the guts to support programming like this, support them or check them out. Go check out the folks over at Gold Co. Learn how to hedge against the insanity today, investing in tangible gold and silver. You see what's going on in the gold markets. You see what's going on around the world. Gold and silver can help stabilize your portfolio. Go to donjuniorgold.com, D-O-N-J-R-gold.com. Learn more about it, how to hedge your bets, and protect from the insanity. So much of this is so important. That's donjuniorgold.com. And go check out Patriot Mobile. And for fast free activation, go to patriotmobile.com slash triggered. You're going to have a cell phone in your pocket, guys. Okay, you can have your money going to woke telecom and having them weaponize your hard-earned dollars against you, or you can give it to Patriot Mobile by going to patriotmobile.com slash triggered for fast free activation and have them donate a portion of every dollar back to the causes that we believe in. It's a no-brainer, but we need you to actively do this. Again, for fast, free, simple activation, go to patriotmobile.com slash triggered. Vote with your wallet. Stop supporting the woke insanity. Support those who will support this kind of programming and have the guts to do so. You guys are the first step. Uh, we got to do that. We don't have a choice. So check them out, and I'll see you soon.